0: Hi, this is Kaya from Twice Bitten, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore. The tail of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. Chapter 15 opens with Tamlin, who is feeling ill after learning of Brother Ludin's murder. He decides to leave the torture dungeon and get some air outside. But on the way, the spike trap that everyone managed to bypass going in is sprung, Because it's designed to protect against intruders coming from the other direction, and also due to some lucky dice rolling, Tamlin manages to dive out of the way and is not harmed. The noise from this incident draws the rest of the party and the decision is made to get out and go home. Things only get more dangerous from here. On the way home, the PCs hear a beautiful song in the distance and become completely enthralled, at least everyone but Cole does, but on his own, Cole cannot stop his companions from changing course and following the sound to its source. The music is coming from a harpy, who has been summoned and sent by Night Mother to hunt them down. The harpy's song leads the helpless companions right to the edge of a cliff. Three of them walk right off it and take a twenty-foot fall. Cole is able to hold Catsbane back long enough for the wizard to be released from the spell when the singing stops. Of course, the only reason the harpy ceases singing is because it's about to attack. A brief combat sequence follows in which Cole and Catsbane manage to drive off the creature before it can swoop down upon their vulnerable friends. Alas, the victory is bittersweet. Tamlin, it turns out, has broken his neck in the fall and has died. Losing Tam stings, it really does. Even though we're only 16 episodes and a few months into this story, I'd grown fond of him. If this were a tabletop game of D&D, I'd be rolling up a new character right now, and probably another cleric, but to be honest, it's hard for me to imagine replacing him. Maybe for a little while, I'll just stick with a party of four. You know, something that made Tamlin's death even harder to accept for me is that way back in Season 1, I mean, all the way back in the very beginning of the season, I casually threw out a homebrew ruling that if any character should ever be reduced to exactly zero hit points, I'd give the party a chance to save them, if it was plausible to do so given their situation. Obviously, in this case, it was not. Tamlin was the only healer, and Shawnee and Yellowfly had just been released from a kind of dream state, and taken a hard fall as well. There's no way they would have had the tools, skills, or wherewithal to be of any help to Tamlin. Well, there's nothing else to say about it other than this. Tamlin is now a part of the fabric of the story, and no matter what happens to the characters, the story will always survive. Although it doesn't make up for the loss of Tamlin, there is some good news to share in this episode, because today, Shaunae reaches level three. Let's get some dice and see what kind of improvements we can make to her character sheet. Maybe, if I'm lucky with the dice, I'll feel a bit better about losing Tamlin. First, Shawnee will get new hit points, rolling a d4 and adding plus one for her constitution bonus. Oh, that's a four on the die, meaning Shaunae gets the maximum possible of five additional hit points. This brings her up to a new maximum of 13 making her the second toughest member of the group just after Yellowfly. That is some welcome news. Let's see if her good luck might continue into stat improvement rolls. Getting a D6, a six on the die means the ability score in question will go up by one point. For strength, a five. Intelligence, I've got a two. Wisdom, a three. Dexterity, hello. A six on dexterity, what could be better? Her 15 becomes a 16. And she's been using her skills a lot, so this makes good sense. Does this help her in terms of bonuses, I wonder? Hang on, I'll I'll just go and check. Be right back. Okay, I'm back and I've checked the rules. More good news. Her missile attacks and armor class are both now at plus 2 instead of plus 1. Well, that's a huge improvement. Very exciting stuff. And we're still not done. How about constitution? A 5. Well, um, perhaps charisma? A two on the die. Okay, well, I'm not complaining. All this good stuff is in addition to her usual class abilities going up by roughly 5% each. She's reaching the point where she'll soon really be able to contribute to the party as a thief instead of just as an archer. Well, that was one tweet level up. And you know what? I think I do feel better. Chapter 16. Part 1. Day 50. Early Evening. Party status. Yellowfly, eight of fifteen hit points. Coal, twelve of twelve. Shawnee, nine of thirteen. Catsbane, six of six. Spells available. There are no spells available. By the time the companions got back to Mirpool, the sun was slung low in the sky. They were exhausted, but the fatigue helped a bit with the grief. The physical exertion of burying Tamlin without using proper tools had actually taken their minds off their loss. They'd chosen a solitary maple in a stand of pines for the interment. Its bright, joyful colors had contrasted their grim business. Cole now wore his friend's orphaned key and holy symbol on a thong around his neck. He wore it like a choker so the little object was tight against his skin, touching the lightly scarred flesh that Tamlin had once healed. He realized at some point along the way that he was wearing a key with no lock around his neck and carrying a lockbox with no key under his arm. This made him smile humorlessly and think about how random and meaningless life really was. He wondered what Tamlin would have to say about that. No doubt his friend would have had some proverb or parable to explain how everything, under the surface, was actually strictly ordered and fair. Tamlin had really believed in that kind of thing and in changing your perspective to alter your reality. Cole had only one perspective right now. Grief. Well, maybe he had two. His grief was tinged with anger. Dawn was surprised to see them back at the Turning Bull. Yellowfly had originally told her they would be staying for a single night, but Mirpool was not a busy place in the autumn, and there were plenty of rooms available. Don even insisted that since Yellowfly had overpaid her for the previous night, there would be no charge for their stay this time. In the early morning, the group rose, ate a quick breakfast, and began the journey back to Silmoral. They passed by the statue of Aylward the Silverthorn, and the Church of Sidal on their way. The old monk with his prayer beads and his retinue of happy children were not there. Everything was still and silent. The six-mile trip back to the city was likewise quiet. When they arrived at the south gate, it was early afternoon. Normally, at this time, the capital would be buzzing with activity, but they could tell even from outside the walls that something was not right. The usual noises of animals and hawkers, laughter and shouting, they were there, but somehow muted. Yellowfly typically avoided conversation with guards, but as they passed under the old stones of the gate, he went out of his way to inquire about the city's uncharacteristically somber mood. There's to be an execution today, said the nearest guard, a tall and broad youth who slouched at his post straw-coloured hair poked out from under the rim of his half-helm. This guard, and others nearby, were all wearing something new with their uniforms. It was a red sash, worn diagonally across the body from left shoulder to right hip, and pinned with an iron brooch bearing the sign of the city watch. There's an execution almost every day. What's so special about this one? replied Yellowfly without irony.
1: Hmm. Well, if you're just getting back to town now, you'll not have heard. But this morning has been... eventful. "'The Church of the Sacred Flame never seemed very exciting before today, wouldn't you agree, Merle?' He
0: looked back at another guard and laughed. (laughs) The other, leaning on his halberd, returned a lopsided grin. Yellowfly cleared his throat. throat. "'Yes, well, we're just arriving from Mirpool. What have we missed, then?' The captain sprung a trap.
1: It was a stroke of genius, that's what I say. They finally caught the leader of that
0: bloody church gang. Yellowfly kept his composure. "'Good.' He managed. It's about time someone cleaned up the streets in this town. I've been robbed twice in the past three years, would you believe that? I hope the king gives the captains a reward. They're heroes, I say. Behind him, Cole, Shawnee, and Catsbane murmured their agreement.
1: That's not all. He managed to snare the whole inner circle. Not just the church's leader, but his best men as well. It's gonna be a bloody good afternoon, friends, at least for the headsman. If you hurry, you might yet find a decent spot to watch from. Don't wear your good clothes if you stand in the front, eh? Well, I only wish I didn't have duty today.
0: That's where I'd be. Bertram Square, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that's right. There's orders to open the Fury Gate to any and all who want to watch the King's justice.
0: For your trouble, said Yellowfly, tossing the man a copper. The guard caught the copper just as his superior officer emerged from behind the guardhouse, where presumably they went to relieve themselves. <clears throat> he was pulling his belt tight and coughing. The guard's goofy grin disappeared immediately, and he stood up straight. On your way, then.
1: Hello, and welcome to my... Promotional Trailer of Enticement! My name is Art the Solo Gamer, and I am the storyteller and game master for a bi-weekly actual play podcast called... The Solo Gaming Experience. Each season, I use a different RPG system with some solo components thrown over the top of it, to hopefully tell the best story I possibly can. Join me on the Solo Gaming Experience. That's the Solo Gaming EXP on any podcast platform near you. I humbly thank you in advance.
0: Chapter 16. Part 2. Day 51. Early Morning five hours before the PC's arrival in Silmoral. If Sister Araness hadn't asked him to fetch more lamp oil from the subcellars, the mystery and the tragedy might have gone undiscovered for several more days, possibly another week. But it must have been Sadal's will that Brother Gillan should be the one to find it. He had been to the subcellars many times over the years, and of course he knew the stories. Everyone did. Priests and priestesses were as human as anyone else after all and faith and piety would be worth precious little indeed if they were maintained easily. All the same, it came as some surprise then when he found the door ajar. He remembered now how he had looked at it dumbly for a few seconds before reaching out to touch it. He swung it back and forth on its hinges, as though manifesting his quandary into sound and movement. But if it had been Sidal's will for him to discover it, the deity must have wanted him to investigate as well. He stepped inside, and immediately felt strange and out of place. Unusual things simply did not happen in the Church of the Sacred Flame. This church was about the most ordinary place in all of Mereth. Brother Gillen cinched his hempen belt and gripped his holy symbol, a copper sun on a disc of iron. He nodded to himself once, and then entered the secret passage, but his nerve began to ebb away with each step. It was dark, and he had gotten no more than a dozen steps in before he was plunged into total blackness. He retreated and stood before the iron grate once again, thinking. He hadn't brought a lamp with him, but there were several spares kept along with the reserved stock of oil. He quickly found one, filled it, lit it, and re-entered the passage before his nerve could desert him. Once again, the feeling of being where he should not be returned. The church of Sidol was his home. Brother Gillen probably knew every cracked brick and uneven step in the entire temple, but here he was, in his home, and simultaneously, a stranger. His lamplight bobbed against walls stained with damp and draped in broken cobwebs as he walked carefully forward. Eventually, he came to a narrow flight of stairs. By now, his heart was beating hard. He could feel it pulsing in his neck. He took the stairs one by one, and with each step, his heart told him to turn and run, But he continued, and eventually found himself in a second hall. It was narrow and straight, and here and there graffiti had been scratched into the walls, vulgar pictures that had no place in a temple of good. There was a shape on the flagstones up ahead. Brother Gillen approached and crouched down. He picked up a hempen rope belt between thumb and forefinger. His deep lines creased his brow. He dropped the belt and continued down the hall, Soon his lamplight revealed another shape on the ground. A priest's robe, and underneath it, a pair of shoes. Oh my. A short distance ahead, the passageway ended in a rounded arch that opened into a square chamber. This must be where the apostates came to do their business, thought Brother Gillen. He kicked the robes and shoes aside with mild distaste, and walked under the archway. What he saw in the chamber beyond took his breath away. When he inhaled again, it was with sharp hitching gulps of air. He cried out involuntarily, turned on his heel, and ran all the way back, making a strangled sound the whole time. That one brief vision would haunt his nightmares for the rest of his days. Brother Gillen had seen a withered corpse splayed out on the ground beside an open sarcophagus. He could not tell who the person was, for they had somehow been reduced to a desiccated husk, as if all the moisture had been sucked from their body. Naked and shriveled, the corpse looked like a human fossil. The face was contorted into an expression somewhere between agony and ecstasy, frozen forever in a silent moan. Had Brother Gillen stayed to look, he would have noticed the priceless holy symbol of Sadal, made of red gold and encrusted in gems, lying unceremoniously in the far corner as though tossed aside. But he hadn't stayed, and he hadn't looked. He had run. He had run until his lungs were burning and his mouth had gone as dry as... He banished the image from his head as he burst up the subcellar stairs and, at his cries, concerned brothers and sisters came from all corners of the temple to see what was the matter. An hour later, the temple was locked down and crawling with city watch guards. Sister Aranes was deep in conversation with a dour and burly middle-aged man with a lantern jaw and slicked-back gray hair. A huge mace hung at the man's belt, and its head tapped the greaves of his polished plate and mail armor when he moved. Brother Gillen knew who the man was without needing to be told. After all, he was a public figure, and Gillen had been there when Sister Araness had anointed him for his current position. Most everyone in town knew the face of Captain Belloc. Captain Belloc is a very dangerous adversary. He's strong and can handle himself in a fight, that's a given, but he is also cunning. While he lacks the extensive formal education of someone like Catspade for example, he is no simpleton, and more often than not, he finds a way to occupy the power position in any given situation. That's not an accident, he makes it so. The situation at the Church of Sadal might have confounded a lesser man. Here was a murder in a house of worship, that alone was enough to cause trouble but the manner of the slaying and the condition of the body were as mysterious as they were disturbing. Belloc knew that Brother Gillen had already shared his discovery with dozens of others. He had interviewed the cleric, and had hoped to find a man half out of his wits. If this Gillen happened to be a little odd, well, that might have made his job easier. But he turned out to be, once he had calmed down, a very reasonable sort of person. There was no reason for anyone to doubt his story. Of course, Belloc had seen it all for himself, The corpse, sucked dry as a prune, was a lifetime first. He had seen a lot of strange and ugly things over the years, but nothing like that. Well, as I said before, a mystery like this one might have confounded a lesser man, but Belloc had a talent for turning any situation to his advantage, and he did so with this one. Once he had arranged for the removal of the body, made a thorough investigation, including a search of the entire temple, not just the secret passage in the room beyond, and once he had completed an interview with Brother Gillen, Sister Araness, and a dozen others he'd found cause to question, he had walked away almost empty-handed. Almost, but not quite. He retained the red gold holy symbol. Sister Araness had argued that it should remain with her, but Bellic had decided it would be better off in his custody. If the priestess wished to study it, she could do so at her leisure, but she would have to do so under his roof and under the observation of his men. Belloc left the Church of the Sacred Flame with something else, too. Even before he declared the ground safe and took his leave, he was beginning to form an idea of how he could use the situation to his advantage. You see, the greatest difficulties in fighting the Church Thieves Guild throughout his career had not been in trying to identify its leadership, nor had it been pressure from his superiors to make meaningful arrests. Both of those were concerns, of course, but they were not the biggest. The greatest barrier between him and the elimination of the church had been the people of Silmoro. The population simply did not see the guilt the way he did. What he really needed, and now had, was some way to vilify them. Chapter 16 Part 2 Day 51 Early Afternoon Party Status Illifly, 9 of 15 hit points. Cole, 12 of 12. Shawnee 10 of 13. Caspain 6 of 6. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized, read languages, and magic missile. He's using some kind of incident over at the Church at all as an excuse to hold a mass execution. One of the clerics over there was found dead. Murdered in some gruesome way, and in framing us as priest-killers, Belloc's hoping to turn the public against us. As you can imagine, Lord Rabbit is beside himself. It's similar to what happened three weeks ago here in the Warrens, only much worse. There's over a dozen men and women slated to be beheaded later this afternoon, and over the course of the next two days. Aye, there's two more public executions happening tomorrow and the day after. Three days of blood and justice is what they're calling it. Rabbit says Billick has announced that he's caught the ringleaders of the church. Of course, he hasn't, but he's using this opportunity to try and flush out the real leadership while he believes he can keep the public on his side. He knows full well that without the dead cleric, the people wouldn't stand for it. He also knows we'll have to respond. The church can't take this lying down. Who's going to be up on that scaffold, kneeling in front of a butcher's block then? Asked Shawnee. Anyone. It makes no real difference, replied Yellowfly. If the captain of the town watch accuses some uncooperative merchant, someone who's never coughed up a single bribe, say, of being the head of Silmoral's best-known criminal organization, every denial would look guiltier than the last, and staying mum would be twice as bad. i had been gone all morning while the others had sat in their apartments waiting for him to return with news. That wait had felt like an eternity, though they had really only fretted and paced for about an hour. Did he say anything else? What about the strongbox? asked Cole. When he had left them, along with a number of questions, Yellowfly had taken the strongbox from the Weeping Eyes Torture Dungeon, hoping his boss might arrange for a locksmith to get it open. "'It's going to cost us, so hopefully there's something worthwhile inside. Fifty gold coins to get it open,' Cole winced. Fifty, he repeated. Yellowfly shrugged helplessly and nodded. "'What about this Stablemaster Zarin fellow?' asked Shawnee. "'Did Rabbit know the name?' Ah, oh, well, as to that, I think we'll come face to face with the Zeran later this afternoon. Come on, I'll explain on the way. On the way where? asked Shani. Why, on the way to the execution, of course. But isn't that dangerous? Isn't that exactly what they want us to do? Don't worry, we won't be where they'll expect us to be. Leave your weapons and armor. You'll have no need of steel. Grab your cloaks. Them you'll need... Chapter 16 Part 3 Day 51 Early Afternoon While the companions collected their belongings and set out to watch the grim spectacle at Burton Square, Sister Sivan sat on the bed in her sparse little room. She was holding a bracelet of prayer beads in her hand and counting off a series of curse words, names of various demons, and assorted vulgarities. Her hair hung over her face concealing a private and maniacal grin. Every so often, a little laugh escaped her perfect lips. <laughs> the sister Sivan that had gone into the subcellar had been weak-minded, easy to control from the outside. The one who had returned was not the same person. In a sense, she was now two people. After she had emptied the priest of his vital energies... Sivan had pushed his withered body aside and risen to stand before the sarcophagus. Swiping the golden symbol into a corner, she pushed at the sarcophagus lid. For now, she was engorged with Brother Niles' spirit, and it must have lent her some kind of supernatural strength. The heavy sarcophagus lid should have taken four strong men to move, but Sivan slid it to the side without difficulty. Under the lid was a thick darkness that surrounded the being within like a swaddling blanket. When it rose into the air, Sivan gave up her body willingly. She allowed it to enter her, and she became them. They giggled again. (laughs) Everything had turned out so much better than they could have hoped for. They would have been happy simply to have sent one of Siddall's slaves to hell. He could be nowhere else, having died during the sinful act of fornication. (laughs) That was a delicious thought, but what had come after was even better. Their efforts were about to be celebrated with a river of blood from the headsman's axe. It had all come from her, and it had all been so, so very easy. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to lend your support, there are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase One Shot in the Dark or the Pendulum World Building Tool, each priced at under 2 bucks, or pick up a free copy of Encyclopedia Manticorva on DriveThruRPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. All of these things make a real difference to the success of the show. As you know, I like to share your generous listener reviews. This one is on the Podbean app. It was posted by Korth910. Korth910 writes, "You've created something truly wonderful and is amazing to listen to. It's inspired me to get back into TTRPGing again and to try a solo RPG. For the first time, I'm enjoying keeping a journal from the view of the characters. It is so much fun. Thanks for the inspiration. Thanks a million, Korth910. Isn't it crazy that journaling about characters in a solo RPG game can produce something so deep and involving? I hope that others will follow your lead and give solo RPGs a try." I would have written it off as pointless and laughable before I gave it a shot. I think the key is in keeping that journal. You want to produce something, some kind of record. And then it somehow all comes to life. I'd also like to show some love to my amazing cast of voice actors. I'd be nowhere without them. And today I get to announce a new addition. This is someone I've been hoping to have on the show for a long while. Playing the Southgate Guard is Tom, who runs the Solo Dungeon Crawler YouTube channel and the Tales of Mistara and Radiant Light solo D&D actual play podcasts. Check him out if you want some great solo D&D content. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials. At Manticore Tale on Twitter, or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, from maps, to random tables, to crafts, to show notes. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. What is Slay the Stars? Oh. Come with us and enjoy a chaotic D&D hotpot, a dash of cosmic fantasy, a few cloves of dark fairy tales... And that's the entire bottle of shenaniganery. Oh, dear. Who oh, no. Listen in Tuesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time on any major streaming platform. Slaythestars.com. Persomnia at Astra.